Dear Lord, we are grateful to you for this time. Grateful that we can gather in the name of Jesus around your word. Grateful that uh, we can gather with the confidence that you speak to us through your word. And so we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wondrous things in your word. I pray that you would help us to uh, apply what we see, that you would give us obedient hearts, and that you would uh, give us clarity uh, where there are things that we do not understand uh, in your word. I pray that you would guide and direct our conversation so that it would all be edifying for us, that it would build us up, strengthen us in the faith, and that you would receive all the glory. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our scripture for this evening will be in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. John, chapter 6. And you'll find that on page 755 if you want to use a Pew Bible. Page 755. And we are continuing in the study of the book Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Last week, we talked about how the, the heart of Christ is drawn toward sinners. He came to save sinners like us. And while sin separates us from God and it, and it, it tends to isolate us from God, we think we need to keep that from God. Jesus came for us to give that to him. He knows what to do with our sins. He wants us to bring those to him. And we looked in Hebrews 4 at verse 16 and how Jesus is our great high priest, human, just as we are without ever sinning. And he knows what it means to be tempted. He knows what it means to be hungry and thirsty, to grieve, to mourn. He knows all of that. There is nothing that we are tempted by that he has not been tempted by. And yet, he withstood all of it. And therefore, he is uniquely in a position to help weak and needy sinners like us. And he wants to. That's why he came. So we're encouraged to come to him with our sins and trust him to save and to show mercy. Well, tonight we're looking at John 6, and we're going to read verses 25 to 40. Verses 25 to 40. This is a really long chapter, uh, 70 some, 71 verses, but we're looking at verses 25 to 40, and we're especially zeroing in on verse 37 in just a few, few moments. Here's the context. Jesus has performed the miracle of feeding 5,000. And uh, he does this with five loaves and two fish. And then he, the next day, uh, seemingly disappears. He walks across the lake. The crowd is trying to find him. They want more of that. They want more of where that came from. They want more of this kind of food and more, more signs. And Jesus is going to correct various misunderstandings on their part. And what I want to highlight above all through these verses is that the heart of Christ is strong enough to keep everyone who comes to him for salvation. Strong enough to keep everyone. 
Uh, to put it in, in formal terms, we're talking about the eternal security of every believer, the perseverance of the saints. He not only, his heart not only beats to save us, his heart keeps us. It's strong enough to keep us. So let's pick up in verse 25 to gain the context. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up. At the last day, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So when the crowd comes to Jesus, they pose various questions to him, and so I want us to, to dwell on their misunderstandings, because it is vitally important for us to know the true nature of our condition as human beings, the true condition of our hearts as sinners, before we understand why Jesus really came and what Jesus came to do, and so that we can understand his heart to keep us. So layers upon layers of misunderstanding in the questions that the crowd poses to Jesus. What stands out to you? What do they not get? Uh They're looking for quick gratification, and they're overlooking their eternal needs. Yes. Focusing on the physical to the neglect of the spiritual. They want bread that they can eat 
to fill their stomachs. Yeah. What else? They, they think there's something that they need to do. And you see this clearly in verse 28. What must we do to do the works God requires? Just tell us what to do, and we'll do it. We're ready. Yeah. And probably they have in mind keeping the law, um, and which parts of it, how much of it, what's most important. These are the, the kinds of debates that are swirling around during this time. What else do they not understand? Uh-huh. They want to see proof of who he was. They want to see his credentials. Show us a sign. We, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. What are you going to do? And why is that problematic? Right. Jesus is able to, to pierce through their question, pierce through their desire to know it doesn't matter how many times he performs signs, they've seen enough as it is. Because as long as their, their faith and their trust is in a sign, a miraculous work, they're not really putting their trust in the one who performs the sign. They're just putting their trust in what they can see. And that's really not trust or faith. They can just know it. So it doesn't matter how many more signs he gives them, they're not going to believe. What else is wrong with what they're saying? long-term, that they want to see a long-term miracle. Like, okay, that's nice, that's nice. We like the, uh, the, the flash here and there, but what can we expect for the next 40 years? If you have truly ushered in, Jesus, the, the messianic age, if this is really the kingdom of God that you have brought, show us something that's going to last. Yeah. Show us your kingdom. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, they're focusing on the, the base needs, and, and, and Jesus is, is inverting that way of thinking and saying, really, your more fundamental need is not your material need, it's actually your spiritual need, it's your eternal needs. Um, 
that, that really uh, describe your need. What else do they not understand? You'll notice the difference between what they say in verse 28 and what Jesus says in verse 29. They say, to do the works God requires, Jesus says, the work singular of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You're trying to do all these these things. You're trying to earn your way to God or prove that you're God's people, and there's really one determinative thing, and that is, do you believe in the one he has sent? It's all about, this is, there's one work, not plural, it's singular. Anything else that stands out to you? Well, it's, we could go on, there's a lot there, and it's easy for us to stand back and and to critique this, but it's, it's not unlike us to have a similar tendency, for us to turn Christianity into a, a kind of um, a, a kind of cult. We would never want to call it that, but we turn it into a kind of cult where it's, it's a means to an end. It's a means toward more happiness. It's a means toward more contentment. It's a means toward more prosperity. And if, just tell us what we need to do in order to get that instead of seeing Christianity as a means to itself. And this is what sin does. Sin uh, has, has a way of, of blinding us to our true need, our most fundamental need. And when you strip all that away, our bedrock problem is that we are sinners who are estranged from God, and we are estranged from God, our Creator, because we've committed treason against Him. We are rebels against him. And that has separated us from God. And so Christianity is about what has God done to reconcile sinners to himself? That's it. And yet we have a way of turning it into all these other things that mask our our fundamental need. Notice, they don't think they're the problem. Right? Jesus needs to do something else to prove himself. Jesus needs to vindicate himself. Maybe they need to perform some other works, but they don't, there's nothing, nothing really wrong with them. And this is how sin deceives us. And this is why we don't understand God's judgment on sin, God's good and holy wrath against sinfulness. It's because we don't really think we're that bad off. And as long as we don't think we're that bad off, we're not really going to come to Christ for salvation. I think this quotation from a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones really summarizes our predicament. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin 
that will always be defending you against every accusation. There's a mechanism in us that defends us against every accusation. It's never me, it's her, it's him, it's this, it's that. He says, we are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners, and that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. To put it another way, as long as we measure ourselves horizontally, we can justify ourselves and think we, we're in pretty good shape. You know, I'm, no, I'm not perfect, but I'm not as bad as that person. Well, I've never done that, so I'm, I'm probably okay. But when we measure ourselves vertically against the holiness of God, well, then who measures up? No one. And, and th- this, is our, this is our problem. We don't measure ourselves vertically enough. Therefore, we don't understand the gravity and the weight of our sin, and therefore, the wrath of God doesn't really make sense. But when we understand that that is our predicament, we don't need another sign. There's nothing that we can do to rescue ourselves from this. All that there is is to see what God has done. And this is where we pick up the solution, the answer to our predicament in verse 35. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. I am the answer. I am. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. Jesus says, you don't need more material bread, physical bread. You need the bread of life. You need the bread that that cannot rot or waste away. And you can find that and more in me. Let's bear down, though, on verse 37. This is a verse chock full of encouragement. I mean, every Word is chock full of encouragement for us to trust the heart of Christ to be strong enough to keep us, to keep everyone who comes to him for salvation. And you may have heard of John Bunyan. He's famous for writing Pilgrim's Progress. And believe it or not, it's actually the best-selling book apart from the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. We also wrote a book called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And the whole book is on John chapter 6, verse 37. The whole book. And so let's just take word by word in this verse to see the encouragement and strain it for all it's worth. So all, all, Not most, all those the Father gives me will come to me. All those, not some, not most, all those the Father gives me. And these are the ones the Father gives me. The Father takes 
the loving initiative in the plan of salvation. And we've been emphasizing the heart of Christ for sinners, but it's, it's important that we not think that Jesus just came to appease this out-of-control, angry father. We're going to talk about the heart of the father, too. God does have wrath against sin. He, he does punish sin, but he takes the loving initiative to save sinners. He, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, right? All those the father gives me, he takes the loving initiative, and he gives, the father gives these to me. We don't haggle over them. They are graciously and lovingly given. It is It is in the heart of God the Father to entrust rebellious sinners like Dane Hadley and like you into the loving hands of his Son, Jesus Christ. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And they come. They will come. If the Father calls in this way, they will come. He cannot be thwarted. He cannot be resisted in this. They will come. And it's whoever, whoever, right? Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. We're not robots. No one will come being dragged, kicking and screaming against their will because this is, this is how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit draws us when he changes our hearts so that the things that we once once loved, we now hate. And the things that were ugly to us and abhorrent to us, now they're beautiful. Christ is beautiful. The cross makes sense. This is our need. He came to save sinners like me and like you. Whoever comes, he changes our desires. He changes our lives. He changes our hearts from the inside out. And whoever is welcome. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, no matter what you've done, no matter what you haven't done, whoever can be drawn by the Father. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And notice it's comes to me. Not whoever comes to church. Not whoever lives a moral life or holy life. Not whoever subscribes to this body of doctrine. All those things are important. All those things are vital and indispensable. But first and foremost, it's coming to the person of Jesus Christ that saves. But so often we substitute something else. We come to church. We do this. We do that. We believe this or that. That's good enough, right? No. Have you come to me? Do you know me personally and intimately? Or do you merely know about me? Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And when you see the word never, or surely not in your translation, you've got a double negative in the Greek. And in English, we try to avoid double negatives. You know, if I said I didn't say nothing, that's, that's terrible English. It's terrible. But in Greek, a double negative is used 
to emphasize a point. Surely not. Never. This is emphatic. This cannot happen. This is impossible for anyone who comes to me to be driven away by me. This won't happen. Trust me. You have my word on this. My heart is strong enough to keep all those who come to me. Case closed. Come to me, and I will keep you. I will never drive you away. And there's this great quote from Bunyan that that I, I want to read to you. Because so often our in our minds and our hearts, we come up with objections. Not me, not her, or there's this reason that gets in the way. Listen to these words from, from John Bunyan. But I am a great sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. And, and John Bunyan, I should say, is using the King James, and the King James, it says, in no wise will I drive them away, in no wise, which is just a fancy 17th century way of saying never. It's impossible. But I am an old sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against light, say you, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, say you, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you, I will in no wise cast out, says Christ. The promise was provided to all to answer all objections and does answer them. And then there's this imaginary dialogue that Dane Ortland, the author, has here that I I found especially compelling. He says, no wait, we say, cautiously approaching, approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I have really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see. But there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all says Jesus. Well, the thing is, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. I understand, says Jesus. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. Jesus says, that's the only kind of person I'm here to help. We say the burden is heavy and and heavier all the time. Jesus says, then let me carry it. We say, it's too much to bear. Jesus says, not for me. We say, you don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Jesus says, then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll be fed up with me. Jesus says, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. The heart of Christ is strong enough to keep you 
to keep me, to keep all those who come to him for salvation. Do we really believe that?